Good morning, everyone. I'm Tia, the outreach coordinator here at LifeBridge, and I just want to say welcome. I'm glad you're here today. We're called to worship as a community, and part of that is just getting together. So I'm glad you're here, that we're together, and we can spend some time learning God's word. Um, if you want to know what's going on, my Life Bridge is a great place to check for upcoming events, for the devotionals, which are awesome, that add on to what we hear today. Um, online giving is there, and you can sign up for texts and emails if you're not getting those. Um, go to mylifebridge.church. Our giving is either online, the usual Venmo type things, or in the boxes out there. And the, your giving, though, is not just to keep the lights on here. It helps us serve our community both locally and globally. And we have an opportunity coming up to serve our bigger global community by doing something right here locally. And that's going to be Serve Sunday, January 30th. And please sign up. We are going to have um, activities going on at the 9 and the 10.30, and we're a little short on the 10.30, so sign up if you can come at 10.30. Um, what is Serve Sunday? It's that day where we try and be the hands and feet of Christ. Rather than put our butts in a pew, we put our hands and feet to work. So this room is going to be transformed. So come to church, wear comfortable shoes. We're going to be packing 30,000 meals for what's called Kids Around the World. And they have four centers around the world where they help kids. And the meals that we pack will go directly to that center. They're not sold. We know where they're going. And to help feed kids, give them the love of Christ, and serve. And you, what you see happening there is what we'll be doing. You will have a hairnet on. But it's going to be high energy, a lot of fun. Um, you'll see what we accomplish. There's going to be a gong up here. Your kids can serve with you. Um, we will have nursery open. Every 5,000 meals we pack, we're going to grab a kid and have them come up here and bang the gong. So bring the kids with you. Um, wear comfortable shoes. Sign up. It's going to be a great chance to do something locally that's going to serve our global um, Christian community. And that's partly what your giving does. Um, we're going to listen to a little video now about something else that your giving does to serve locally. So Save Families for Children video, guys. Hello, everyone. We are going to do a quick ministry update on one of our local partners at LifeBridge, uh, Save Families for Children of Southeastern Wisconsin. And we have today Amy Barr, who is not only a good friend and someone that has been um, part of LifeBridge since its beginning, but also an employee and strong advocate for Safe Families. For children. And so, um, Amy, as we start, can you just remind us of what Safe Families for Children is and, you know, kind of the mission and why it's important that we partner with them as a church? Safe Families is a movement really of communities and um, not just the church, but communities as a whole. Um, and we partner with churches. That's where we recruit most of our volunteers. Um, so, the idea is that we're mobilizing the community to be a neighbor um, and just support each other. So when there's families who hit a crisis and have nobody to turn to, then they can call Safe Families and through our bridge to local churches can get those supports in place to help stabilize their crisis and just offer them family-like supports. Awesome. And... Um... 
how would you, can you give us just some highlights of some wins and um, just great stories from 2021? Sure. Uh, 2021, gosh. Um, so we had, uh, through October, we don't have quite all the data for um, the calendar year of 2021, but through October, we had 183 plus new family friendships, which I think are super cool uh, because it's not removing a kid from their family. So those family friendships are just supporting people um, without disrupting the family, coming alongside them, anything you would call on a friend for. Um, and then there were 197 new hostings. So that's when a kid is hosted with one of our volunteer families. Um, and then there were 53 new host families added, uh, which is exciting um, because we need new volunteers all the time. Can you just give some, um, you know, highlights of some things you can anticipate needing going into a new year? Um, maybe just reminders of how we can um, different ways to volunteer or help out um, or any specific needs you can see for 2022? Sure. Uh, 2022, I know um, without having a lot of details about them, there are a couple other uh, sites around the state that are looking to open new chapters. Uh, so that's exciting and it's also an immense amount of work. And um, usually some of the other staff around the state will kind of pitch in um, to get them up and running. And so that stretches everybody a little bit. So um, it's exciting. Um, and we could definitely use some prayers about all of those chapters that are wanting to open up. Also it speaks that God is moving. There's, there's different organizations and community people who are coming to save families and saying, we want you here. We want to see your movement in our community. Uh, so that's super exciting. Um, and also, uh, the super awkward but always necessary ask of donations. We are a nonprofit, and so we function on um, on donations. And um, even just $10 a month has been able to make a huge impact. We have done different campaigns of, um, you know, 100 people for $10 a month or different things like that. Um, and um, the final one that I'm going to highlight, I have just at the beginning of the school year switched into a church engagement role and uh, that means I'm kind of recruiting more churches and recruiting more volunteers ultimately so one of the things that we've been seeing in the last couple of years is some of our original volunteers are reaching what we'd call saturation where they've connected with a number of families already and they've built those long-lasting relationships and they just don't have the capacity for more so they're kind of on their way out, which means we need to recruit a new generation of volunteers to connect with more families. So more volunteers, donations, and as always, prayers, because uh, this is a ministry um, that we really want to make sure that we're uh, bringing God's kingdom to our communities. Absolutely. And then if anyone has additional questions, obviously they can check the website. Can they also shoulder tap you or contact you? Absolutely. If they... Please. Yeah. All right. Awesome. Thank you so much, Amy, for your time and for all the work that you do for children across the state. Thanks. All right. That was uh, Amy Barr and my wife, Savannah. So if you have any more questions about 
uh, about safe families, please reach out to Amy Barr. If you have know her or know her contact info, you can just reach out to her. She attends here. Probably saw her out in the lobby on your way in. Like the person on the screen, like in the lobby. No way. How cool is that? Um, so she, she attends here. If you need more information, reach out to us. There's a card out there on the wall in the, in the lobby as well. You can find out more about Safe Families. They're a great organization that we love having the privilege to partner with them to bring God's kingdom to our community more and to help, help come alongside families as much as possible. So if you have more questions on how you can volunteer, how you can give, or how you can just support that organization, please don't hesitate to reach out. Let's pray, and we'll jump into our sermon. Father, Lord, we thank you for, Lord, just the hope of the gospel. We thank you for who you are, for how you love us, what you've done in the cross to save us. Lord, set our hearts to worship you now. Pray that your spirit would be ministering to us as we open your word and seek to conform our lives to the truth of scripture. It's in your name, Jesus, we pray. Amen. One more brief thing that I just remembered. Um, it, there's more to that video, so if you'd like to hear, especially a story that kind of illustrates how all of Safe Families works and plays and plays together and all of that, uh, check out the YouTube page. We'll upload it to YouTube uh, and our uh, channel. So check that out if you want to hear more info about it. Okay, our campaign is called Life Changing Community. We started this a couple of weeks ago, and we have been saying every week that the church is a community that is supposed to be about life change. Okay, so it's not just supposed to be like a social club or a group that we hang out and develop friendships and relationships in. That happens, and that's kind of the foundation of how life changes and how our community produces life change. But it's always supposed to be geared towards becoming more like Christ. So we've been talking the last few weeks about what transformation looks like in the Christian life and how it happens and how it happens in community. So when we think of some of these, these big, like, essential uh, character traits of the Christian faith, things like love, mercy, humility, compassion, like those are uh, intrinsically meant to be either developed or practiced in community. For example, uh, if you want to show mercy, there has to be a person to whom you are showing mercy, right? Love intrinsically implies that there are people that you are learning to love. So these things have to be done in community. There is no, there is no version of the Christian faith that is in isolation. It doesn't work that way. Because that is how we are designed, as we saw in the first week. And Christ is transforming us through community together. So today, what we're going to talk about is this concept of hope. How we should be a community of hope. And hope is something that I think for many of us is kind of this obscure concept in our mind. It kind of gets wrapped up with just like a blind uh, uh, confidence that everything is going to work out. Okay, so we call it like a romantic comedy hope that like, I don't know, it'll work out in the end. Like they'll end up together, even though now it doesn't look like it because there was just the big reveal. It was miscommunication that everybody knows was just a miscommunication. It's every romantic comedy script ever, right? It was just a miscommunication. Just talk, tell her, whatever. I'll go on my soapbox about that later. Um, <laughs> that's just some like blind hope, like, yeah, it'll work out. Christian hope is very different than that, okay? So I want us to kind of frame our minds around what Christian hope is all about. And I, I heard this quote in a podcast that I linked you to in the devotional 
couple weeks ago from a pastor named Curtis Ching. He said, hope is seeing yourself in a story, a past that gives you longing, a future that promises to fulfill that longing, and a present that energizes you to work towards that future fulfillment. I think that's such a good definition. As I've been processing this and thinking through it over the last month or so, uh, and as I've been reading and studying it in scripture, I think this is absolutely true. That for us, hope has to be seeing ourselves as a part of a bigger story. Now, I'll, I'll go through some examples here in just a minute. Oh, so I, I made, <laughs> explanation why it looks ridiculous. I made these <clears throat> way too small at first. So then John was trying to fix them on the fly like while I was preaching first service. That's why country is real weird. Um, but now you can see them and I'm not like testing your vision like I was first service. Um, yeah, so we have all of these different stories that are a part of our life. Um, our family, uh, you have a family history, a tradition, that, stories that your family tells of things that you're proud of, like what it means to be a part of your family, like what are some characteristics and virtues that your family has valued. Um, your city, Burlington has a story that Burlington folks who grew up here and whose parents and their parents grew up here, they have stories that they tell of what it means to be a part of this community. Your work, your work has a story most likely of what they tell, of why they exist, why they do what they do, all of that stuff. So all of us have these stories. Our country, America has a story that we'll, we'll talk more about later. Uh, but the simple example that's uh, pretty lighthearted and fun is the team example, that one up there on the top left. Uh, if you're a, a fan of sports, you consider yourself as a part of that team's story. So when I think of, of I'm a Cubs fan, Cubs, Bears, Chicago fan for everything. It's kind of a sad uh, state to be in, but it is what it is. Um, when I think of myself as a part of the Cubs story, right? So for what, 108 years of failure and losing, like that kind of galvanized all Cubs fans around how pathetic we were. But that was a part of our story, right? And then we shared all these quirky little stories too about things that have happened over the decades, <laughs> over the century of losing and failure, like the goat, the curse of the goat. Anybody aware of the curse of the goat story for the Cubs? Yeah, like the most ridiculous thing. This dude tried to bring a goat into Wrigley Field. They wouldn't let him, of course, because it's a goat. This was like in the 40s. And so he like cursed the Cubs that they wouldn't win a World Series. And Cubs fans take that stuff seriously. We share like the story of Bartman, who uh, Moises Salou probably wasn't gonna catch the ball anyways, but whatever. We share that story and uh, the tragic story of how Cubs fans treated him. Like we share all of that stuff, all of the failure. That's like a part of our past that produces this longing for a World Series. And then they finally accomplished that longing and we finally achieved it in 2016 and it was like tears of joy. Like I've, I, don't, I don't know that I've ever like had a more like impactful sports moment in my life and I grew up with the 90s Bulls, but that was amazing. It was unreal. And then that like moved us to continue working towards another World Series and it continued driving to that. Once we had that hope and we reached that fulfillment of that hope, we thought we would get it, another one, and we didn't, and now they traded everybody, so we're back to zero. But 
that's a part of our story. That's what it means to be part of a story. Many of you guys consider yourselves a part of the Packers story, okay? It's football playoff season is rolling around, so I'm sharing this with you because I love you and because I want to just get you, all right? I, as a Bears fan, I love to just... My, my role right now in the playoff season is to be a troll. So this is precisely what I'm doing right now. As a Bears fan, we have had a decade of just terrible football, and my role is to be a troll. And my son asked me, like, who are you rooting for in the NFL playoffs, Dad? I'm like, whoever's playing the Packers. <laughs> they're, they're my favorite team. I'm vindictive. I'm petty when it comes to my football uh, Packers relationship. So I was thinking about this this week. So Packers fans, I share this with you just to troll you, but also uh, to be sure that this is not your predominant story for the next few weeks, Okay. Don't live primarily in this story. <laughs> Maybe I should. <laughs> Help my pettiness. It's <laughs> a good point, Kathleen. Uh, <laughs> so I'm sharing this with you to get you. And also, so this isn't your predominant story. Because if you're honest with yourself, there isn't a lot of hope that the Packers are going to win the Super Bowl. Like, what hope do you really have? When you did have hope, this is what happened a few years back in 2015. I was thinking about it this yesterday. I was really racking my brain to try to think. I think this guy's name is Brandon Bostic. Okay. He is my favorite player since Brian Urlacher retired. I think that's absolutely true. You guys are like, who's Brandon Bostic? Okay, so 2015, Packers are in the, I think it's the NFC championship game. They're playing the Seahawks. Uh, they're winning big. The Seahawks are making this big comeback. This is an onside kick in the fourth quarter. And Brandon Bostick's job, the guy, the ball's hitting him in the head. His job is to block number 13 and let Jordy Nelson, the guy behind him, who's like one of the Packers' best receivers ever, catch the ball. Instead, he decides to jump up and try to catch it, hits off his head. The Seahawks get it. They go down and score, and they win the NFC Championship game. My favorite player since Brian Urlacher, 100%. I love this guy. He's my favorite. So point being, don't put your hope in the Packers. Don't make it your predominant story because they might let you down. You don't have a lot of hope that they're like real, genuine hope that they're actually going to win the Super Bowl this year. So be sure it's not your predominant story because many fans around here are. Whenever the Packers lose, my neighborhood goes like quiet and nobody comes out to do their normal walks and stuff, it's kind of a sad place. So, <clears throat> I'm just trolling you. All right, so here's what it looked like before. Can anybody see that? No. <laughs> you guys need to check your glasses. <laughs> okay, so we have all these different parts of our story. The problem is we, we need a predominant story, or we need what I'm calling an umbrella story. Okay, these graphics are so great. I know, I should be like a designer. Um, we need this umbrella story that I'm calling it, or a predominant story that all of the other stories kind of fit underneath and mold themselves to, or they fit into it. And the problem is no, none of these stories, like country, your team, your family, your work, your state, your city, not, none of those stories are big enough to be your umbrella story. Only the gospel of Jesus is. And so as Christians, we need to live primarily, view ourselves primarily as participants in the story of the gospel. We have these other stories that are a part of our life, but they cannot be our umbrella story. 
Only the gospel is big enough for that. So that's how we must perceive of our stories. So to, to see this, we're going to look at uh, Romans chapter 8, which this is the text that I primarily turned to and saw that uh, definition from uh, Chang perfectly illustrated, which we'll see in just a moment. Paul is writing here to the church in Rome. And there are two different groups in the church that he's primarily uh, focused on writing to. Uh, later in the, in the book, he will refer to them as the strong and the weak. Okay? So there's the strong in faith and the weak in faith. The strong in faith were predominantly uh, Gentile Christians, not only, but predominantly Gentile Christians who didn't feel obligated to continue living uh, under the Mosaic law. So they didn't feel obligated to continue following the laws that required you to uh, uh, follow the dietary rules. So eating meat sacrificed to idols, they were okay with that. It didn't really bother them um, because of the Jewish dietary laws that if it was contaminated, they, they were eating kosher. So they, if it was contaminated by something that wasn't kosher, then the weak in faith felt like they couldn't eat it. The strong in faith felt, sure, we're free in Christ, we can eat this. Uh, following a lot of the, the Jewish holy days and ceremonial practices, the weak, the weak in faith felt like they needed to, the strong did not. Uh, the strong were, I said, more Gentile Christians living in Rome, so they had a more prominent social status in Rome, and they remained in Rome during the expulsion of the Jews. So a few years prior to Paul writing this letter, the Jews had been expelled from Rome. Caesar just said, get out, <laughs> basically. So they got out. And they had to leave their home, leave their work, leave everything behind for, I think, five years. And then eventually they were welcomed back. And the mostly Gentile Christians were not exposed to that. The weak, they were more Jewish Christians who felt obligated to follow those laws of Moses that I just articulated. Not as a salvation issue, but as a holiness issue. They just felt closer to God when they did those. So they felt guilty when they didn't practice those. And as I said, they were kicked out of Rome. Just because, and when they came back, Caesar said, welcome back, I'm sorry, now you need to pay me a bunch of taxes. <laughs> so really, really high taxes they had to pay, and they were writing to Paul to say, can we rebel? Like, can we not pay these taxes? Because it's unjust. And Paul says, no, pay them. Give to Caesar what is Caesar's, is basically what he, he quotes Jesus as saying. <clears throat> so that's kind of the, the audience that Paul is writing to here. And so that's important for this first line where Paul says, I consider that our present sufferings are not worth comparing with the glory that will be revealed in us. So the sufferings that he's uh, pointing out or that he's uh, discussing is, is what I just mentioned. The weak, the suffering is paying high taxes, living under an authoritarian uh, Caesar, a government that doesn't really have your best interests in mind, that, that's how they're suffering. They have no social status of which to speak of. They have difficulty eating kosher and following some of the laws that they feel like they should follow. They're suffering in that sense. The strong, they are suffering in that they have to give up some of their rights and privileges that they have. So again, they are free to eat whatever they want, but Paul's going to tell them at the end of the book that, hey, you, you, shouldn't, you should eat kosher when you're with people who feel convicted by not eating kosher, is what he tells them. So he's saying, give up your rights, give up your privileges, sounds familiar, right? Give up your privileges for the benefit of your brothers and sisters in Christ who have a weaker faith. So that's how they're called to suffer. So give up some of the, the rights that they have in their social status to be in community with people who have no social status to speak of. 
So he's calling both of them to suffer in different ways. And both of them are suffering in different ways. But what he's going to do here and what Peter does in his letter as well, when a church is being persecuted or suffering or going through difficult times, is calling them to recognize the bigger story that they're a part of. What he's saying is uh, that these present sufferings are not worth comparing with the glory that will be revealed. So look ahead. Look ahead to the glory that will be revealed in us. We talked about last week how we're being transformed from glory to glory. And this is the same sense, how there's glory waiting for the followers of Christ, for believers in Jesus, that is greater than any of the current struggles and pain and suffering that we are going through. So what we see here is this constant calling to the future, to hope that you have hope no matter what. Now he's going to articulate this big story. It says, For the creation waits in eager expectation for the children of God to be revealed. So I love this. What he's going to say is that uh, Christians, followers of Jesus, you're a part of this big story. And so we have hope. He's referring to them as the children of God here. That the creation, the, the subhuman creation, like animals, like plants, like the earth, like all of that stuff, is waiting in eager expectation, which is another description of hope, for the children of God to be revealed. For this future realization of the people of God. John Tyson, in his book, The Primal Path, he's talking about some primary ideas that young people, uh, young men specifically in this book, need to know when they uh, graduate from adolescence to adulthood. And he's quoting another author who said, one of the things that, one of the five things they need to know is that your life is not about you, (laughs) which is a little blunt. It's a little on the nose. It's absolutely true, but it's a little blunt. So if you try telling a junior high boy your life is not about you, see how that goes, right? So John Tyson kind of articulated it in a different way to his son, and he said, you're part of the story, but you're not the whole story, which is such a good way of thinking about it, I think. And what Paul is going to articulate to us here is, Christian, you're a part of the story, you're a big part of the story, but you're not the whole story. God's doing something bigger than just you, and you get to be a part of it. So it combines these ideas of humility on one hand, but also dignity and value on the other hand, in just perfect fashion. Paul goes on, for creation was subjected, or for the creation was subjected to frustration, not by its own choice, but by the will of the one who subjected it. So he's going back to the story of Genesis 3, how creation was subjected to the curse after Adam and Eve sinned. God cursed creation with sin and death exists. And basically entropy. Everything kind of goes from order to disorder. Decay is increasing constantly. In hope, there's our word, hope, that the creation itself will be liberated from its bondage to decay and brought into the freedom and glory of the children of God. So again, he's calling us to this cosmic story, saying you guys are suffering right now. Think of this cosmic story of what God is doing in the restoration of all creation. That creation itself is in bondage and is decaying right now because of the curse of Genesis chapter 3. Genesis chapter 1, everything is created in perfection and harmony. Our relationship with God is perfect. Our relationship with one another 
is perfect. Our relationship to creation is perfect. But after the curse, all three of those were distorted after sin came into the world. And what we're looking forward to in our future hope is that as the children of God are revealed and our, our Jesus returns and the children of God, that's Christians, followers of Jesus, are ruling creation under God's authority as he intended from the beginning, then it will be released from its bondage to decay into freedom and glory. Okay, tracking? Big picture story of the gospels. When I say gospel, I'm not just thinking, I'm not just referring to salvation. Paul's not just referring to salvation here. It's a big part of it. It's not all of it. It's much more than that. It's the cosmic redemption of all creation. We know that the whole creation has been groaning, as in the pains of childbirth, right up to the present time. Not only so, but we ourselves. So not only creation, not only the subhuman creation, but we ourselves. So even those who are followers of Jesus, who have experienced a taste, as he's going to say, the first fruits of the Spirit of this full redemption that Christ is bringing, we groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for our adoption to sonship, the redemption of our bodies. <clears throat> okay, so if you're uh, an astute Bible reader, you'll see where he says, we're w as we wait eagerly for our adoption to sonship, he's talking about that as something in the future. You're like, wait, aren't we already children of God if we believe in Jesus? What's he talking about? Actually, just a few verses earlier, I believe in verse 14, he says that we are adopted children of God if we have and experience the Holy Spirit. So, are we or are we waiting to be adopted as children of God? Paul's answer is yes to both. <laughs> it's frustrating. It's a little confusing. Uh, theologically, we call this the already but not yet. Okay. So, we are already adopted as children of God, but we haven't come to realize it in full, is basically what he's saying. As I said last week, we talked about this inner transformation that Christ is bringing us uh, from into the image of Christ from glory to glory, how we're ever increasing in glory as our inner life is transformed. And this side of the new creation, uh, the transformation that Christ brings us through the Holy Spirit is primarily in our inner life, our character formation, and how we're looking more like Jesus, fruit of the Spirit, love, joy, peace, all that stuff. What Paul is talking about here in the future is that inner transformation will, will proceed to being an external transformation as well of our physical nature. And all of creation will no longer be subject to the curse of Genesis 3, including our physical bodies. He says there, the redemption of our bodies, where our bodies will be like Christ after, uh, after his resurrection or in the transfiguration. For in this hope we were saved. So when you were saved, when you came to believe in Jesus Christ as your Lord and your Savior, this became your story. This cosmic redemption that is taking place of all creation, from Genesis 1 to Genesis 3 to the New Testament, all the way to Revelation 21 and 22, the creation, fall, redemption, restoration, this big story of the gospel is your story. When you came to believe in Jesus, this is the big story that you view yourself as a part of. This becomes your umbrella story. But hope that is seen is no hope at all. Who hopes for what they already have? But if we hope for what we do not yet have, we wait for it patiently. 
In the same way, the Spirit helps us. I could go a whole like hour on patience there, but I won't. Get the joke? Because I'd be testing your patience. That was good, and I didn't even mean to do it. Yeah. <laughs> in the same way, the Spirit helps us in our weakness. Okay, so now Paul's transitioning. He, he's talking about how, how we're, as followers of Jesus, still groaning. <laughs> we're, we're waiting for the fullness of the redemption that Christ will bring, of our bodies being transformed. And he says, while we're waiting, the Spirit is the one who helps us in our weakness. Now, I, based on the context here, I don't think he minds just like general human. He means general human weakness, like I can't lift heavy things, like my body hurts, or like I forget things. I don't think that's necessarily what he means. I think he's talking about more how we don't know the will of God right now. You've likely had times in your life where you've desperately prayed, like, God, what is your will for me to do here? I want to do your will, but I don't know it. What is it? That's probably what he has in mind here, is knowing God's will in areas where uh, it's gray. It's not totally certain. Scripture isn't perfectly clear on, okay? Like the situation that he's writing to the Romans about, eating meat, sacrifice to idols, all of that stuff he has in view. Spirit helps us in our weakness. We do not know what we ought to pray for, but the Spirit himself intercedes for us through wordless groans. And he who searches our hearts knows the mind of the Spirit because the Spirit intercedes for God's people in accordance with the will of God. So what Paul is calling us to here is to, to live in the Spirit. Live in the Spirit of God. God has given you the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is interceding for you when you don't know what to say. You don't know what God's will is. The Holy Spirit is interceding for you. He knows God's will. God knows your heart. So there's this understanding and mutual understanding that we can then have. When we don't know what to pray, we rely on the Holy Spirit to intercede for us as to what is the will of God. Now, at a very basic level, it should be incredibly comforting that, one, you have the Holy Spirit, who Paul describes as the first fruits, that assurance, that confidence, the, the uh, deposit or down payment that what God has promised will come true. So if you've experienced the Holy Spirit, if when you pray, you sense God with you, if, if when you read Scripture, it comes alive to you, Oh, that stuff, if, you can, if you're acting in your gifts and you understand what God has gifted you to do, you have the Holy Spirit and you've, you, you've experienced that. That's a down payment. That's an assurance that what he has promised will come to pass. So the Spirit is interceding for God's people in accordance with the will of God. He's praying for God's people. He's standing in the gap for us. And therefore, Paul can say in verse 28, and we know that in all things, God works for the good of those who love him, who have been called according to his purpose. So again, Paul is assuming that the will of God is our primary goal, that our desire is God's will to be done. He's kind of just assuming that. So if that is the case for us and the spirit of God, even when we don't know the will of God, the spirit of God is interceding for us and we have the Holy Spirit of God and we're seeking God's will, then we can confidently say in verse 28 that God works for the good of those who love him, that God's will will be done. So if that is our primary driving will and desire and the Spirit of God is interceding for us and communicating between us and God, then God's will will be done. 
And so what happens will be good. Most likely you've heard this verse quoted as like a, as a rom-com hope thing, right? Like, it'll work out. Everything's going to be okay because God works for the good of those who love him and who are called according to his purposes. It's not really what it's getting at. More what it's getting at is God's will will be done. The Spirit of God is interceding for us and with us. So, in that sense, God's will will be done. Perhaps your health issue won't be resolved the way you want it to, as immediately as you hope it would. Perhaps your relationship won't. But we can still have hope because God's will will be done, is what Paul is calling us to here. For those God foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son. Band, you guys can come up and get set. Notice how much of this is God's doing. So this is why we can have hope, is because it's God who does all of this. That he might be the firstborn among many brothers and sisters. So Jesus is the first. Yeah. And those he predestined, he also called. And those he called, he also justified. And those he justified, he also glorified. So this is what God does in us, in the believer. It's all God's work. And so we can have hope because God is faithful and we can trust that what he says he will do, he will do. So here's our big idea for today that I'll come back and, un and unpack a little bit more. We are a community that lives in the hope of our umbrella story, the gospel. This has two implications to it. One, make sure that this is your predominant story that you are living out of, that all other stories fall underneath that umbrella. And two, we need to call one another to this story. Remind each other that this is our big story that we are living under. That all these other little stories are fine, but they must fall under the umbrella of the gospel. Let's pray, and I'll come back up and apply it later. Lord, we praise you for this big story that you are writing. Lord, all that you are doing to redeem creation, we thank you for the hope that we have in your future redemption of all creation, of us, of our bodies. We thank you for the work that you are doing in us to transform us into the image of Christ. Lord, help us to have hope by primarily viewing ourselves as a part of this story and not the other smaller stories that tend to reduce our hope. So Lord, guide your people, inspire hope within us, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's stand and sing together. If you guys need prayer while we're singing, there's prayer available in the back.
our story. Would your spirit remind us that the gospel is our predominant, is our umbrella story that supersedes all other stories. That we have been saved into this hope. Produce hope in us by your spirit, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. You guys can have a seat for a few moments. If you remember, our big idea is that we are a community that lives in the hope of our umbrella story, the gospel. This means two things. One, be sure that the gospel is your umbrella story. That story that supersedes all other stories, all other aspects of your life, call them narratives, whatever. The gospel supersedes all of them. That means if another story or another part of your life, whether it be your family, your country, your city, your team, whatever it might be, if it doesn't fit under the story of the gospel, parts of it need to go. (laughs) And it needs to be conformed to your umbrella story of the gospel. And also that this is our community story. When you were saved, you were saved into this story as a part of a community that we need to remind each other and call each other to. That this is our umbrella story because it's really easy to forget. (laughs) It's really easy to get just overwhelmed and engrossed and taken up in one of those smaller stories that is without hope. One of the stories of many Christians, or of all of our lives, but of many Christians, that has become our umbrella story has been the story of our country. And as a simple example to just illustrate how uh, Chang's definition is so great, uh, because even when you think of the past of our country, there's a raging debate right now that is, How do we view our country primarily? Do we view our country primarily through the story of 1619, which was the year that the first slaves, the African slaves came to the shores of America? Or do we primarily view our story through the lens of 1776? And really the answer is both. (laughs) And our history is muddy, but depending on how you view the story of our country, creates a very different hope, a very different longing. And it's a very polarizing issue. If you think of our future, where we're headed as a country, that's what filters into our politics, our political persuasions, what party we think should be in power, what uh, legislation we think should be enacted and how it should be carried out. That all plays to our future vision of what America should be. And there are very different stories of how people think that that future should play out and what would be best for our nation. And again, it leads to great polarization and differences among us. And though that future vision and past longing have produced in our present an energy, an energy that I've never seen or experienced before in my lifetime to work towards that future hope of what it is politically. And if you're wondering if I'm right about whether or not this is like people's predominant story, even Christians' predominant umbrella story, look no further than social media. Post anything political. 
and watch the comment section just turn into the most vitriolic, angry, evil place <laughs> on the planet. People say awful stuff to each other on social media. I'm, ex I'm, I'm ex uh, exaggerating, of course. But people say terrible things to each other, dehumanizing things to each other on social media. It energizes people in a way that I have never seen before to achieve their political ends. And this has filtered and crept into the church, where it has become quite clear that this, for many Christians, our country is our umbrella story. I wish I would have written down the quote, but even just... Uh, a few weeks ago, a very prominent political figure said something to the effect of, uh, we can't win following the way of Jesus, was essentially what he said. Like his meekness, his humility, his love, and his compassion and mercy that he has lived out, we can't win politically following that, so we need to push that aside. Christian, your red flags need to be going up when you hear something like that. Because that means that their political story or their country story has become their umbrella story. And they're asking you to do the same. No. The gospel for us is our umbrella story. So we will never compromise the way of Jesus for a political vision of what we think our country should be. So we need to live primarily under the gospel story. And when we live primarily under that, then we can participate in politics in a way that is healthy and still have hope. Because whatever, whatever your political persuasions are, when you look at the, the polarization, there's not a lot of hope that this is all going to turn out right and turn out good in our country. It's not like God gave us a promise in Scripture that this is all going to turn out the way we want in our country. So we don't have a lot of hope. And if you're living primarily in that story, you will not be a hopeful person. But if we primarily live in the story of the gospel and view that, have the perspective of that being our umbrella story, we can engage in politics in a healthy way while still maintaining hope. Because our hope is not in our political persuasions, our hope is not in our party, it's not in our country, it's in Jesus and in his return. That's one. And two, we need to remind ourselves, remind one another to live primarily in this story of the gospel. So I was thinking about an example of this. The primary aspect or the primary situation that comes to mind for me is when I'm praying who is suffering or going through a very difficult time. And just as Paul, I think we can take our cues from what Paul does here and what Peter does in his letter, 1 Peter. A few things that come to mind. When we pray with somebody who is suffering, what we want to do is say something that is true, but something that will give them hope as well. And many times this leads Christians to say things that are just not true because they want to give hope and they want to inspire and encourage and help them persevere. But if we want to do both and we want to say something that is true, that has meat, that is backed by the truth of Scripture, but is also hopeful, what do we say when you're with somebody who's suffering? Time and time again in Scripture, what we see is Paul here reminding them of who they are. That 
Remember, he says that you are a child of God. You are an adopted child of God in the family of God. Remember who you are. And if you're doubting that, remember that he has given you the Holy Spirit. And the Holy Spirit is this confirmation, the down payment, the first fruit, he says, of what is to come. He reminds you of who you are, that you are an adopted child of God. And as such, now you participate in this big story. You're a part of this big story of God redeeming all of creation. And so, uh, barring a specific word from God that he is going to uh, make your situation turn out right, we may not have that promise. But what we do have is at the end that there will be this full restoration of all creation to the perfection of an Eden-like state, God living with us. Revelation 21 and 22, that he will wipe away every tear from our eye. Death and pain will be no more. And so no matter what we are going through now, even if we can't say that it is going to turn out exactly the way that you want soon, we can say that it will in the end. And therefore, you have hope. We may not be able to say that your health condition will get better. But what we can say is at the end, Jesus will fully restore your body as he fully restores all of creation. And there is hope in that. We may not be able to say that the relationship that is fractured and breaking apart right now will be restored in a year, in two years, in four years, because it may not. But what we can say is that in the end, it will be restored when Jesus returns and in the new creation, when he makes all things new and our relationships with one another are fully restored. even just looking around the room and knowing the things that some of you are going through. We can have hope no matter what. So if you feel hopeless, I would encourage you to just, as much as you can, remember who you are, lean into God's presence with you in the Holy Spirit, and to get this big picture vision, this big picture perspective of what God is doing in the redemption of all creation. And you can have hope still. There is always hope for the people of God. In church, we need to call each other to this hope. Remind one another that this is not all that there is. That our hope is in Jesus. And when we look into history, we see that God is faithful. God does what he says he will do. His will will be accomplished. So this is our big story, church. Creation, Eden, perfect relationship, humanity to God, God walking in the garden with his people. Intimacy is on display. Perfect relationships with one another, perfect relationship with creation. The fall, sin enters the world, creation is cursed, death, pain, suffering comes in. And then Jesus, redemption. Jesus dying on the cross to restore our relationship to God, that through faith in him we can have right relationship to God. And we have Christ's righteousness so that we can be with God. And not only that, 
But Jesus promises to restore our relationships to one another in the church by giving us the Holy Spirit to remind us who we are, to empower us to live in the fruit of the Spirit and to model and exemplify these perfect relationships that we're supposed to have and to restore our relationship to creation ultimately when he returns at the final restoration where he will make all things new and the curse will be no more, death and dying will be gone. Sin, evil, pain, suffering will be no more. We will be in God's presence with him in perfect relationship forever. That is a hope that we can hang our hat on. And it's with this idea in mind of this big story that the Apostle Paul writes in Romans 8 at the end of it. I'm just going to read this and then we're going to go into communion. What then shall we say in response to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son but gave him up for all of us, how will he not also along with him graciously give us all things? Who will bring any charge against those whom God has chosen? It is God who justifies. Who then is the one who condemns? No one. Christ Jesus, who died more than that, who was raised to life, is at the right hand of God, who is also interceding for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall trouble, or hardship, or persecution, or famine, or nakedness, or danger, or sword? As it is written, for your sake we face death all day long. We are considered as sheep to be slaughtered. No, in all of these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am convinced that neither death nor life, neither angels nor demons, neither the present nor the future, nor any powers, neither height nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. In that story that we can find hope in the midst of great pain and in great suffering, that nothing will ever separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus, our Lord. And we're going to remember what Jesus has accomplished for us as we take communion together. The communion elements are in the back on the table. I'll go first. Front rows, if you guys want to follow me. And as the row in front of you finishes, just follow them back. Grab the communion elements and hold on to them. There are two cups, one with juice and one with bread. Hold on to them. We'll pray for them and take them. Set me free and I am yours. I 
pressed upon me Staying desperate for you, God Staying humbled at your feet I will lift these hands in praise I will I'll remind myself of all that you've done And the life I in our identification with you as we put our faith and our trust in you that we have hope that Lord just as you died you were bodily risen as well so Lord we have hope of resurrection because you have taken our sin in your flesh and died on the cross in our place Lord we thank you for your sacrifice as we partake of the bread together let's partake for the cup as well. Lord Jesus, we thank you for your blood that was shed for us. Your blood that cleanses us from all unrighteousness. 
that establishes with humanity a new and everlasting covenant with you, God, that we are made righteous through faith and trust in you, that we have your righteousness, Jesus, because of what you have done on the cross. So, Lord, we trust in nothing else for our salvation, not our own good deeds, not our own righteousness, but in you. And, Lord, we trust in no one else for the fulfillment of our hope but you. You have been faithful to save in the past as you have saved us and given us your spirit, and we have met with you and encountered you on so many occasions. Lord, we trust that our hope in you is not misplaced, that you will do what you have said you will do. So, Lord, all of our faith and our trust is in you, and we remember your sacrifice as we partake of the cup. Let's partake of the cup together. You guys allow me to pray for you just one more time. Lord, God, would you fill us with your hope? Lord, even though these other stories that we're a part of may not be very hopeful, yours is. And so, Lord, if we're lacking in hope, I pray that you would help us to have the perspective of the gospel story, that we are participants in this beautiful story of hope. Give us a picture of the future fulfillment of the new creation when you will make all things new. Give us a sense of your presence with us now in the Holy Spirit who helps us in our weaknesses. Lord, we love you. We thank you for all you have done to confirm that our hope is not misplaced. So Jesus, we trust you. For all those, Lord, who are suffering, those who are in pain, or those who are struggling right now, give them hope a sense of your presence. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. If you guys need prayer, there's still prayer available for you in the back. If not, go and live in this gospel story of hope and peace.